Year's resolutions, they are certainly a, a good thing, but what about resolutions that we make in our Christian life? And even deeper than resolutions, right, what type of uh, commitments do we have in our Christian life? You know, what does it look like for a Christian when you become a new Christian, especially as a new Christian? I mean, even for people who've been walking in the Christian faith for 40, 50 years, what type of commitments does it look like for us? What type of commitments should we have? What does it look like for us as believers to walk out the newness of life that we've been given? You see, it's, it's more than just a, a resolution, right? But it's a commitment to the surrendered life, right? It's, it's evidence of a reconciled life that's been committed to Christ. And so, as Christians, we just don't make a mere resolve to be a better person, right? You can't just kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps to say, you know what, I'm going to be a better person. No, you, you have a new life, and you've been made new. And so, tonight, what we're going to talk about is some new commitments that we all should have as Christians and what that looks like. And so, if you're new to Midtree and you came here tonight to maybe hear a sermon, to help you, you know, with 10 steps to keep your resolutions, I'm sorry. You know, here at Midtree, we walk through Scripture. We walk through Scripture, and we apply it to our lives. And so, I'm sorry, I don't have 10 tips to help you keep your resolution. You know, if, if you want to get up earlier, I can let you borrow a kid, and they will certainly wake you up. But let's talk about some of these tonight, and let's walk through them. And so tonight, the Scripture that we're going to study is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 17 through 21. And let me give you a little bit of background. This is the second letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He planted this church, and in this letter, he wrote to them. He wrote, the, obviously, we have 1 Corinthians, and we believe there may have been a third letter, but uh, that letter, unfortunately, may have been lost. But you know what? God has provided these first two letters for us. Um, and we're going to be faithful and go through and read that word. And so if you would join me, let's turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's look at, start with verse 17. And it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse, seven, verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you, God, for allowing us all to be here tonight, God. Thank you for allowing us to experience a new year, Father. I know last year was tough for some. I know last year also gave a lot of joy for some. But Lord, in spite of joy and our sufferings and things that we may go through, Lord, both the good and bad, may we be a people that keep our heart and our mind focused on you, Lord. Lord, draw our hearts to you, Lord. Draw our hearts to a deep, deep commitment to your son Christ and imitating him, Lord, each and every year uh, that you see fit to give us life here on earth, Father. Lord, may we be a people that point others to you. May we be a people, Lord, that just have a sweet aroma given off by our love for you, Lord. And so, God, tonight, Lord, I pray that you would move me into the background and may your word go forward, Father. And, Lord, we ask all this 
In your son's holy and precious name, amen. All right, so if you're a note taker, tonight we're going to talk about five commitments that each Christian should have when they walk in the newness of life. The first commitment is the commitment to study scripture. The second is a commitment to prayer. The third is a commitment to the local church. The fourth is a commitment to discipleship. And fifth is the commitment to evangelism. So let's talk about the commitment to study scripture. Well, in Ephesians 6:2, this is what we read. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So just from that text, what we gather from that is that the word of God is a vital part of our spiritual armor. It's what God uses us, uses to arm us. And it's vitally important that we read to understand the word of God as we walk out in this new Christian life. And there's no shortcuts, there's no cheat codes, there's no cliff notes, right? For the study, for your own personal study of the word of God. And even an in-depth study of systematic theology is not a substitute for it. And there's power, right? There's power in God's word that you can't find in anywhere else. Because I'll, I'll tell you, if I'm just up here talking to you today, apart from the word of God, I'm just a clanging noise. It's useless. It's just advice to, with the hopes that you have a better Tuesday. But the, there's power in God's word. And it's critical that even after you go home, right, tonight after hearing this sermon, you search the scriptures for yourself. You test them. Even after Will and, and Jimmy speak, it's vitally important that you go and you test that for yourself. Because above everything, right, even while Jimmy and Will, they're excellent teachers. And I am so humbled to be up here because I feel like I don't deserve it to be up here in front of you today, but their deepest desire for you is to not merely grasp their talking points each week, but rather it's for you to have a deep desire and an understanding of God's word above all else. Because there's power. There's power in God's word. And it's authoritative in our life, and it's vitally important that we as believers cling to it tightly. And, you know, we also need to take care to study the real thing. Um, in law school, well, Christy and I, so I'm an attorney by profession. I hope no one runs out after hearing that. But I'm an attorney by profession, and Christy and I went to law school together. So we actually went into law school married. We came out married, and we, we came out married to each other. So we made it through that. But in law school, there was a professor. His name was Professor Bo Stone. Professor Stone was rough. And we took a class. It was called Biz Org. And in law school, you see a lot of people, they would use these things called E&Es or examples and explanations, right? And it's kind of like a shortcut for studying for the class. So if you just didn't want to go to class, you didn't want to study, everybody would read these E&Es. And so... Uh, People would always take those and just read over them. And I mean, they were full of information. And so, but Professor Stone was a little bit different. If you didn't go and attend class and you didn't study what he told you, because sometimes in class he'd also give you some handouts, right? And so every year at the end of the semester, you know, in law school, there's one test and that's all you got right? Like everything depends on one test. And so upperclassmen who had been through Bo Stone's class would say, hey, you guys need to make sure that you don't take the E&E, right? Don't take the shortcut. Don't study that. 
You need to make sure that you do two things. You go to class, you pay attention, and read everything that he hands out to you in class. But guess what? Some people still, they, they still want to do it their way, y'all. They just want to do it their way. And there were so many times, and in, 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 I remember when we were taking that class, that the people around you, right, who would read these E&Es, they would sound so smart because you're thinking, man, they know, they know corporate orgs better than I do. <laughs> like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. But guess what would happen? You would come down and you would take the test at the end of the semester and it would be nothing about that E&E on that exam. The Word of God is kind of like that, guys. The Word of God is authoritative. You know, we can't take a shortcut and try to use a substitute for it, right? Sometimes we try to do the same thing. You know, we'll get a good devotional, and we're like, man, this devotional is fire, man. I'm reading this devotional by, by Spurgeon, man. I'm getting these quotes down. Spurgeon is awesome. He's a great saint, but guess what? His words are no substitute for the Word of God. We have to cling to the Word of God. Lifeway has awesome books. I love me some Lifeway. I always like find those little emails. I get the emails and the deals. And, but even Lifeway books are no substitute for the real thing, guys. We cannot neglect and consume mere candy bars as a, as a meal substitute when God wants us to feast and get the vital vitamins and nutrients that his word has to offer. And my next point is that we need to study scripture so that we're prepared for spiritual attacks and we can be able to discern false teachers. And when we read in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4, this is Jesus speaking. This is just after Jesus had been baptized and the Spirit led him out into the, the wilderness for 40 days. And this is what it says. It says, Then Jesus, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, that's Satan, said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, this is Jesus answering, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, guys, even Jesus, the living, walking, and active word incarnate outlines for us the vital importance of consuming and knowing the word. It's our spiritual nourishment. But here's the most sobering thing about this passage that we're about to read. If you go down a few lines and you start at verse 5 through 7, check this out. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Here's a sobering thing about that passage to me that really stands out. Satan knows scripture too, y'all. Satan knows scripture really well. He knows it well enough that he can manipulate it. And he's even bold enough, y'all. He's bold enough to challenge Jesus. Satan knew very well who he was. And he's bold enough to challenge the Son of God on his word. That is fascinating to me. That blows my mind. The living word is challenged by Satan. And if Satan is that bold with Jesus, what do you think he's going to do to us? Do you think he's just going to give us a pass? No. Every day he's coming at you. Satan takes no days off. Neither should we. The Holy Spirit doesn't either, right? The living and active Holy Spirit in you takes no days off. Neither should we, guys. So again, it's vitally important that we just don't consume things also merely because they have a Christian label slapped on them. That's dangerous as well. You know, we should always, again, test those things and discern those things using the whole counsel of God in context, Right? Super important to study and know these things in proper context. And I'll tell you, 
as we wrap up this point, this subpoint, the most dangerous thing to our faith aren't the untruths that we encounter about it, but rather a people who don't know their Bibles well enough to tell the difference between biblical truth and heresy. My next point is that under this commitment to Scripture is that God's Word is a guide for the Christian life. It should guide us. Psalm 139, verses 103 through 105 say this. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see here, God's word should be refreshing to us. It should be the thing that renews us each day as spiritual nourishment for our souls. But it also should give us discernment, right, to things which could lead us away from God, that can kind of nudge you away from that narrow path. Because that's how it happens, right? You kind of get slowly nudged, slowly over time. Next thing you know, you are completely lost. There was um, one time, uh, I don't know if any of you guys, well, I know a lot of you guys know Mark and Brianne Womack, but last year, they had a youth event at their house, and uh, we had a, a foster daughter at the time who was uh, 17, and she went, and uh, my brother Angel, he, um, he wanted to ride with me. Well, I asked him to ride with me. I don't know if he wanted to right? But he came along. <laughs> he was kind enough to ride with me. And I had to go pick up Alonda. And Mark and Brianne, they, they live out there, right? They live on past Waverly Hall. And so I, you know, get my happy little self. And Angel, his first question was this. Angel said, do you know where you're going? And I'm like, yeah, I know where I'm going. So what do I do? I decide to start driving, right? Like I'm, he I'm headed towards Upatoy. Like, I'm, I'm going that direction, right? So I'm just driving along. And it was like, what, 20 minutes that we drove? And then finally, I was like, oh, man, I, I think I went the wrong way. So then me, not using the technology that God has blessed me with in my phone, I decide, I'm like, you know what? If I make a left on some random road, I'll be able to cut through, and it'll, like, drop me off in, like, Katala somewhere. Bruh, I was wrong. Dude. I finally was like, look, i got to put in their address. And I kid you not, the phone was like, we, basically it was like, I can't find where you are. Like, I, I was in the middle of nowhere. And it got so bad, I was on a dirt road. There weren't even power lines anywhere. I mean, I had no idea where I was. And, but Angel was so cool. And he was just like, hey, Larry, it just happened sometime. But I bet in the back of his mind, he's like, dude, you should just put in the directions. But, that, but that's what it's like sometimes when we trust ourselves above the, the word of God, right? Sometimes when we go with our own feelings and our gut, we think, oh, yeah, I know this is right. That's why we need the word because it can be sobering to you and get you back on that right direction. Just like me, you don't want to end up spiritually, in a sense, lost and out on an island in a desolate place by yourself. And that's what can happen if we're not plugged in and we're not studying the Word of God. The next thing you know, you think, oh, yeah, this is right. I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I'm doing what the world would say it feels right. But even test your feelings against the Word of God because sometimes your feelings will lie to you. Test everything against the Word. And I know, you know, today, um, you know, at one time, uh, all of us in this room were not believers, right? We were just walking around spiritually blind in life. And, and that's what it's like. It's like you're literally blind when you're walking around in life apart from God opening your eyes and revealing things to you. And sometimes we want to creep back into that old life. But the word actually helps keep you on the right track. It helps keep your eyes open. It helps keep your, your soul awake to what's really going on around you so you know who God is and you don't veer off and you don't bump into things that, at, at night that could be harm, harmful for you spiritually. 
And then to wrap up this point, it's, the Bible is more than sufficient to instruct you and, and guide you in your sanctification. 2 Timothy verses 3, I mean, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 through 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And again, if we don't accept the word of God as our, as our guide in our Christian life, we can't be effective ambassadors for him. And my summary is this. The Bible is not a self-help book, but it's the vital nourishment that sustains, strengthens, guides, and directs the Christian life. So the next commitment is our commitment to prayer. And I'll tell you, it, it's such a privilege to be able to communicate with God. Because in Philippians 4, 6, we read this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As we walk out our Christian life, we need to be people who are also committed to prayer. We need to spend real time engaged with the Lord real time with him, because it's a privilege, and it's the key to peace. It's the key, the key to re, a renewed assurance of our life in Christ, and y'all, there's like an, there's an intimacy, intimacy that you have with God when you're, when you're praying with him. It's the thing that keeps the anxiety away as a result of some of the day-to-day -day worries in life, and it keeps those things in check because of our overall spiritual condition isn't dependent upon our horizontal relationships, but rather this vertical relationship that we have with God. That's exactly what prayer is. You are communing with God vertically. So when you walk out your life dealing with all the drama, all the mess that you may have to deal with, these relationships become so much better when you're connected with the Lord. Make sure that this relationship, that there's a commitment here before we make commitments there. It's vital. And it's all also to remember that prayer is not just meditation, y'all. It's not just contemplating something. But it's intentional time set aside to be in relationship with God. And I know we're all busy people. But I heard something years ago that really, man, it, it hit me. It hit my soul. Someone said to me, you can tell a lot about a man, really, really now three ways, how he spends his money, right, what's on his phone, and how he spends his time. How do we spend our time in those three things? If you took out your phone today and you examined it, right, what would it say about how you, your commitment in your prayer life? Hey, I'm, I'm calling myself out, right? I'm calling myself out. What would it say about our commitment to studying scripture? If you pulled out your phone and you just looked at it, right? Because I think there's an app, at least on iPhones, that tells you how much time you spend on your phone and what apps you have open. What does that say about us? Where are our commitments, Right? Now, our next point is that we can't treat God like a genie when we pray. God isn't some genie that we just, you know, God, let me, let me ask you for this, this, this one thing that I really desire in the flesh. You know, Leonard Ravenhill says it perfectly. He says, prayer is not an argument with God to persuade him to move things our way, but an exercise by which we are enabled by his spirit to move things his way. So ultimately, prayer is about aligning our desires, our heart, with God's desires and his heart. Prayer isn't about us trying to move him or to, to, to get him to kind of, you know, uh, try to manipulate him. No, prayer is about asking God, pleading that our desires become what he desires. 
It's a beautiful thing. And then we also pray because Jesus commands us to pray. In Luke 18, verses uh, 1 through 8, it says this. It says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So here we see Jesus is giving us a parable of a judge who's lawless. However, even here, we see that this lawless and misanthrope judge gives this poor widow justice simply because basically he annoyed her consistently. He annoyed, she annoyed him consistently. Long story short, this judge granted what this widow wanted because she got on his nerves. But think about this. If we are petitioning our Father in heaven who loves us, how much more is he willing to grant those things and answer our prayers for us. If this judge who had no love lost for this woman is willing to do that for her, think about our Father in heaven who actually delights in our prayers and actually loves us. And you see, our prayers, guys, they are not a point of annoyance for God. When you pray to God, saints, when you pray to him, you're not annoying God. You are not inconveniencing God. In fact, God wants to hear your prayers because it says in Scripture that he actually delights in hearing your prayers. Some of the best prayers that you can pray is when you are the weakest. Some of the best prayers that you can pray are when you feel like you are just absolutely not worthy coming to the Lord. But guess what? He wants that. He delights in that. He wants to hear from his kids. Pray to him. And I know there's some of us in this room that may have difficulty with our own earthly fathers. Well, guess what? Your heavenly father wants to hear you. And I don't know who needed to hear that, but your heavenly father wants to hear from you. In fact, he delights in it. And that's my next point is that we should pray because God delights in our prayers. Proverbs 15 uh, Chapter 15, verse 8 says this, The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. You see, God doesn't delight in what you can offer him. It's not about what you can offer him. Because anything that we offer him apart from Christ is just mere rags. The only thing that we truly offer him is our sin, right? But he still takes delight in you. But God delights in a voice lifted up in humility to him. He delights in our desire to have his ear bent, to have an opportunity to be heard by him. And you see, God, he isn't like earthly kings or earthly rulers. You know, with them, you got to do the security clearance. You got to kind of, you know, make sure that you're legitimate or whatnot. No, God is not like that. You have a front row seat. You have his ear. He wants to hear from you. John Piper says this really, really well. And I love this quote so much. And I'm sorry, I know it's really long, but it's, it's a great quote. And it says this. God is the kind of God who will be pleased with the one thing I have to offer. My thirst. That is why the sovereign freedom and self-sufficiency of God are so precious to me. They are the fountain of my hope that God is delighted not by the resourcefulness of bucket brigades, but by the bending down of broken sinners to drink at the fountain of grace. 
Prayer is his delight because prayer shows the reaches of our poverty and the riches of his grace. Prayer is that wonderful transaction where the wealth of God's glory is magnified and the wants of our soul are satisfied. Therefore, God delights in the prayers of the upright. Pray to God, saints, because he delights in you. And also pray because we know from Scripture that God answers your prayers. God is actively answering prayers every day, every second. He's answering prayers. And this, here are some, a few examples. In Genesis 18, you know, Abraham's prayer to God to save anyone found righteous in Sodom. What does God do? He allows Abraham to go in and rescue his nephew Lot. Abraham prayed, God answered. That was so kind of him. He saved Lot from the destruction of Sodom. Exodus 33. This, this to me, y'all, is, is the most amazing to me. Every, every time I read this, I, I can't get over it. But in Exodus 33, Moses asked God to see his glory. And what does God do in all of his kindness? God says, I'll let you see my glory. But God puts Moses behind a stone. God even with his own hand shielded Moses as he walks by and then removed his hand so Moses can see his back. Y'all, are we praying to see God's glory? How amazing is that that we can even ask him for that? Have you prayed for miracles in your life? Are we okay with just, you know, prayers that don't want to bother God? You can't bother God. Pray. Ask to see his glory. Ask to see miracles in your life. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, you know, Hannah petitions God for a son after many years of being barren. And it was so bad, right, that, that she, she said that she felt like um, what's the word? She felt that she was um, basically being embarrassed. And it says in, in the word that God had actually closed her womb. And she was praying that God would, would open up her womb. But, but here's the cool part. Here's what's cool to me. She doesn't just ask for a child, right? She doesn't give a blanket prayer. She asks for a son. And what does God do? He grants her a son. He gave her a son. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, any of y'all in here need to be praying specifically about the, the, the sex of your child. I'm not saying that, right? Because God had a specific role that he wanted Samuel to play in, as he, in his progressive revelation. So I don't want people leaving here going to tell Will, well, Larry told us we should, you know, we should pray for a boy. But as you see here, we should be specific. That doesn't mean we can't. doesn't mean we can't pray specifically. We should pray specifically and ask God that he would align our hearts to his. And in 2 Kings chapter, uh, verse 20, I'm, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 20, King Hezekiah, again, God's answering prayer. He had fallen ill, and, and y'all, to me, this is, I mean... <laughs> You know, Isaiah just rolls in there. He's like, hey, uh, Hezekiah, God told me you're going to die. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's some harsh news. But what does King Hezekiah do? It says he just turned to the wall and he prayed to God. He said, God, remember my faithfulness. Remember my faithfulness to you. And what does God do in his good grace and his kindness? He gave King Hezekiah another 15 years to live. And here's another neat thing about that. Is it says that God saw King Hezekiah's tears. God is a God of empathy with his people. He's not cold. He, he, has, he, he experiences those things with us. He's in it with you. As we sang earlier, even if we're at the lowest of lows, he's there with you. He's not just there with you, right? He has empathy for you. He is feeling it with you. He's not far off from us. 
But God, he is intimately involved with us, especially when we pray. And lastly, Acts, in Acts 12, God hears the prayers of the church, right? Peter was jailed by Herod, and God sent an angel to rescue him from jail. And the local church, what did they do? They got together, they prayed for Peter, and, and God answered in a way that was so miraculous that even Peter, he, he thought it was just a vision, Peter couldn't believe it. Here's the man that had walked with Jesus, right? Had seen Jesus perform these miracles, and then he was locked away in jail. The saints are praying for him, and then God allows for him to be busted out of jail, and he's like, oh, yeah, this is so cool. It, it, this is probably just a, a vision I'm having. I'm like, dude, you saw Jesus, the risen Christ from the dead, and you think this is just a vision? Come on, dude. But my point here is also that God hears the prayers of the corporate church. He hears prayers of the local church. And as a church, we should all be united in some way in our prayers. Like Christy talked about earlier, we should be united in praying for our missionaries. We should be united in, in praying for people who are sick in our congregation. We should be united in praying for our elders like Ron, Jimmy, and Will. We should be united in prayer as a community. Why? Because there is power in that prayer. Not because of us, but because of the Lord that we serve. There's power there. And this leads me to our next commitment as a result of the reconciled life. And that's a commitment to the local church. In Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25, we read this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Guys, we need to have a commitment to meet together consistently. There should be a commitment there. And there's no separation of our commitment to Christ and our commitment to each other as a local church. Let me read that one more time. There is no separation of our commitment to Christ and our commitment to each other as the local church. Every now and then when I'm out evangelizing, I will meet that one person who's like, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, where do you, where, where do you worship? I just kind of do it on my own. You can't do that. You can't do that. By the measure of Scripture, it is impossible for us to walk out faithfully as a Christian and you try to do it by yourself. You cannot do that. You cannot say, I'm a Christian and not love his body. You cannot say, I'm a Christian and I am not committed to a local church. It just doesn't work that way. It's very difficult to do that. God does not desire that for you. In fact, as we read, God desires for you to be connected with one another for us to be connected Throwing myself in here too, because I need it, <laughs> for us to be connected intimately and woven in intimately with each other's lives. So a desire to engage with one another for corporate worship is critical in the life of a believer. And if we are not meeting together and invading each other's lives, how can we do that well? In order to persevere, we need, to, we need the encouragement of our brothers and sisters. It's vital. Y'all, those 2 a.m. phone calls are real. There are times when you need that, and you need the church. And it's okay. Why? Because God encourages that for us to live together, to do life together, as some may say. We need eyes on us. We need to see how each other's living. That requires a real co a commitment to accountability and maybe sometimes sharing some things that are just frankly uncomfortable. It's a mask off mentality when you do life. Mask off. Don't say, think I'm saying that about COVID. I don't want somebody to twist that. <laughs> you can leave your mask on if you want to. Um, but yeah, you know, I know COVID kind of sometimes throws a wrench in things, right? These past few years, I mean, man, it's going on three years. <laughs> they, they've been rough in the life of the church. 
But man, to look around and to see the relationships that are being built in spite of COVID, I mean, look throughout church history. COVID is nothing, really, com- compared to, and I'm not saying it's, it's not dangerous. Don't hear me out here. But what I'm saying is you've seen the church go through some really horrible things in 2,000 years, and yet the church thrives. Look at Midtree. I am blown away at what God has done in Midtree in spite of COVID. It's amazing what he's done. But again, my point here is, is that there needs to be some level of involvement with the local church and its members. And, and that goes to my next point is that you should be known by the local church. I heard someone say this one time, and it just blew my mind. It was back when we were at Impact, and I can't remember the young man's name, but he was on stage. But he said, you know what? God wants you to be known. Man, that, that hit me hard. God wants you to be known. And the life of a believer involves being known and knowing and serving others. This is why being part of even an MCG, a missional community group, is critical. It's an avenue to develop intimate relationships within the body, as well as a means to live out our commission to bear one another's burdens. If we aren't known, and if we don't make efforts to become known by others, how can we live out this command in a real meaningful way? And sometimes I hear people, they say, well, man, I just, you know, I just, don't, I just don't feel like anybody wants to get to know me. My question is, do you want to get to know other people? Some, we have to make effort too, right? You need to make an effort to become known. And I'll tell you, I am blown away again by Midtree at the opportunities. We just heard some that Chrissy spoke about. There are opportunities to become known. You should be known. In 1 Peter Chapter 4, verse 9, it says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Man, let me tell y'all, Midtree knows how to show some hospitality. There are some of y'all, and I've told y'all this before, that y'all need to write a book about hospitality, and y'all are sitting out here. I mean, I have been blown away. There are times I'll walk in somebody's house, I, there's no pretentiousness, there's no, I mean, Midtree folks know how to love on people, y'all. And I think that should be the first book that is written by Midtree Publishers is, is how to be hospitable to people. I mean, it, 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 nev- it always blows me away. I, I, every holiday, there's always families that come forward. Hey, if there's a single or, you know, a college student or someone, can, can, can they, you, you can invite them to my house. Man, I, you don't see that everywhere, y'all. Midtree knows how to be hospitable. Kylie, the the front, girl, I walk through those doors, I feel welcome, I feel warm. Usher team, thank y'all. That is something that we do really well here, and I want to encourage you with it, because it does make a difference. As a local body, it does make the difference to people, and it's a beautiful thing to see a church be so hospitable to people, and I love it. And so, you know, being part of an MCG, it shouldn't be an afterthought in our life, right? Being part of a missional community group, it's a direct effort to be obedient to the call to bear one another's burdens, as we see in Galatians 6.2. And how can we bear one another's burdens if we're not known? If we don't take an opportunity to even be slightly uncomfortable, And my next point is that meeting together helps address each other's needs. And we read in Acts 2, verses 42 through 46, that, and, and we see the following, and this is really describing the, the early church, okay? This is after the ascension of Christ, and this is what we read there. We're going to start with verse 42. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to, excuse me, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, And all came upon every soul, and many wondrous signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed and were gathered together had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple 
together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so again, how can we as believers be intimately involved in each other's lives if we aren't meeting together as we see in as the example that we see in Acts 2? They met together, and it says they met together daily. And I'm going to tell you, if you want that type, of, that type of commitment, there are MCGs here, people who literally meet together every day. And it is fascinating. They do life every day in some capacity. It's fascinating. I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm just saying it is amazing to see that level of doing life together here at the church. Can you all tell I love Midtree? I just love the church. And so what we see is, you know, yes, God does provide for his people, but it's clear from Scripture that God gives us, right, as a church, he gives us the awesome privilege to be involved and have a front row seat as he meets the needs of the saints. As a result of his generosity to reconcile himself to us, it should move us, right, as individuals of the body, not as an obligation, right? This shouldn't be felt as like an obligation to help meet each other's needs, but rather as an opportunity to give generously to and among the body with a heart full of gladness. And it's the generous love of God in our lives that drives us to love one another as we show generosity and commitment to the local church and to one another. And that leads us to discipleship. There should be a commitment to discipleship. Again, walking out this life lived, the reconciled life lived in Christ, there should be a commitment to discipleship. And in 1 John, we read this. I'm sorry, excuse me. In John 13, verses 34 through 35, it says this. And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Guys, in discipleship, it involves a deep commitment to one another because it models the love of Jesus that we see in the Bible. Spending time together, sharing with each other, teaching, correcting, guiding, Deep personal relationships modeled after Christ draw us not only to one another, right? When you are obedient to being discipled, it doesn't just draw you to each other. It draws you closer to God because of that obedience. That's amazing that we can draw together in intimacy as saints, right? Being obedient. But as we do that, God is just drawing us closer to himself. Discipleship, when it's done correctly, it deepens our spiritual maturity. Therefore, the goal of discipleship isn't really shallow. It shouldn't be, your goal shouldn't be shallow. It shouldn't be surface-level relationships. Again, these are the type of relationships where it's like, man, I'm going to call you. Can I call you at 2 in the morning when I have an issue? And there are brothers here. There are brothers here that I have. I know I can call you at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm not saying you should do that. Like, don't, <laughs> don't start calling each other at 2 in the morning. But I'm saying, do you have that type of relationship with someone where you're being discipled or you're discipling someone where you can make that call? That's my point. Again, having deep relationships also, they require a lot of work, right? I remember when I first started dating my wife, Man, that was some work. I had to work. In the same way, when it comes to discipleship, I still work, honey. I still work really hard for you. I just want you to know that. I couldn't leave that point there. But when it comes to discipleship, we should also work in those relationships. You know, it takes a lot, a lot of work. It takes a lot of grit. It takes a lot of effort to be committed to discipleship. And I want to say this, as part of discipleship, right, 
when you enter into those discipleship relationships, and I hope that everyone in here has that type of relationship, either you're discipling someone or you're being discipled, and really it should be working both ways for you as a believer, right? You should be comfortable with the uncomfortable and accommodating to inconvenience. Let me say that again. When it comes to discipleship, you need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and you need to be accommodating to inconvenience. Because as we saturate our lives with others, it must always be with a desire to model Christ to those that he has placed in our lives. Just like Jesus is, you read in scripture, Jesus was saturated, he walked with them, he talked with them, he ate with them. Jesus did everything with his disciples. And what it does is it, it makes our theology real. Discipleship gives feet to our theology, right? It makes theology real because it requires us to lead by the example of Christ that he gave us in Scripture. And our delight in Christ should be the engine, right? It should be the engine that, that, that drives that desire to disciple others. Older men, and I'm putting myself in that bucket too, there's someone that needs equipping. There's a younger man that needs equipping. There's a younger man that needs teaching. And then young men, there's a young boy that needs you. Older women, the same thing goes for you. Teaching, equipping young women, young girls, showing them, being that example of what a, cry, a life reconciled to God and submitted to Christ looks like. And parents, we should be discipling our children. And that goes for aunts and uncles and whoever else is involved in the life of young children. And I'm not saying that discipleship is not of our children in particular. It's not about teaching a behavior, right? It's not about teaching a behavior to our kids, but it's about pointing our kids towards intimacy with Christ. That's different. It's not just saying, I want you to be a good boy or a good girl. No, that's not the point of discipling your children. The point is to point them to Christ, to model that for them. Even how we discipline them should be a model for Christ. And that also means, parents, that we should be reading the word with our children. And I'll tell you, uh, back in Texas, when uh, I first started reading scripture with my children, y'all, it was really awkward. It was, it was so strange because a man came up to me. He's like, hey, do you, do you read the word with your kids? I'm like, no. And as someone who's trying to disciple me, he said, well, you should. And let me tell you, it was super, super awkward. But God was so faithful in that. Because if I hadn't started doing that, I probably wouldn't be up here today. And God was so kind in that, and that he ultimately didn't so much, the, the point wasn't so much to drive my children, right, to Christ, which is, yes, that's important, but ultimately, God drove me into a deeper relationship with him because I was obedient. And again, sometimes you'll feel completely unqualified but guess what? God makes you qualified by virtue of you being saved and by virtue of you being their parent. You are absolutely equipped, more than equipped for that job. And then we should also be looking out for discipleship opportunities, right? Even in the church, we should be looking out for discipleship opportunities. There was a man at a church that I was at before, and uh, I remember we were sitting in this row, on, on this row, and it's like the guy came up and he uh, tackled me to, to get to meet me. And, you know, he's an older guy. He's bald. I think that's what drew him to me is because he saw my shiny head and our shiny heads is kind of connected or something. But anyways, he just came up to me. He's like, hey, introduced, my, introduced himself to me, introduced his wife to me. And uh, as I got to know him, I would notice he would do this with other people, right? And so one day I asked, I said, hey, um, what's up with that? You know, I just see you. You're just like, you jet to new people when you see them in church. He said, oh, it's because I'm the pastor in my row. What? He said, I'm the pastor in my row. 
And I was just blown away because, y'all, he took membership so seriously that when he would see someone come into church, he made it a point to get to know them. And so, Midtree, if you're a member, you should be the pastor of your row. When you see someone you don't know or you see a new face come in, we should all be like little pastors of our row looking after people, you know, looking for those opportunities to disciple somebody. That was, just a, that was just a really neat thing to me. And again, discipleship also is a call to be intimate with Christ. And I won't belabor this point, but I'll read this uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote to you because I think it summarizes it so well, and then we'll move on. But it says, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Wow. If we're not being discipled and we're not discipling, there's a big old gap in our Christianity. Jesus modeled discipleship, so should we. And a summary point here, just to kind of wrap this up, is commitment to discipleship is important because we can't imitate Christ if we don't open ourselves to showing others how to imitate Christ as well. If we don't show others how to imitate Christ, we cannot imitate Christ. And that leads us to our last point, and that's evangelism. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As, as people reconcile to God, let me tell you this. We have the greatest gift imaginable in all of the universe. We have the greatest gift. We have a reconciled relationship with the creator of everything. And, you know, not just, we're rec- not just the fact that we're reconciled with him on earth, but we're reconciled with him for all of eternity. And so our new life is a result of Christ's finished work on the cross, and it's evidenced by the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And so if we have this great gift, why shouldn't we proclaim it? Why shouldn't we share it? You know, I once heard a quote, um, and I think this is actually from an atheist, and he said, look, how much do you have to hate someone to believe you have the greatest gift from God, but yet you don't share it with other people? How much do we have to hate somebody to know that we have the greatest gift ever imaginable and we don't share it with people. We should be excited to proclaim the gospel to others. It's almost like if our neighbor's house was burning down, right? Or we knew that they had some crazy disease and we knew it and we had the cure and we just just didn't tell them. We just kind of gave them a pat on the back and was like, you know, hey, I hope you're you're okay. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to be sometimes a little bit awkward, but it should be a point where we have the greatest gift and we should be eager to share it with those who are truly in eternal peril. You have souls at stake and we just kind of keep it quiet. Praise God for those that shared and proclaimed the gospel to us. That should move us to share it and proclaim it with others as well. And our lives should be a living testimony to this at work at school, in public. And I've also heard someone say this to me once, that every house of a Christian should be the the church of the neighborhood. Your house should be a small church. People in your neighborhood, particularly if you have small children that play with other kids in the house, they should see your house as a refuge. Other neighbors should see your house as a place of peace, as a place where they can go and they know that they can be comfortable comforted, but also they can hear the truth. Love people enough to share this great truth that we have to them. And tonight, you know, as I close, I just want to share this last little bit here. And that's this, is the Christian life isn't about our own resolutions or a resolve of sheer force and grit and determination to be a better person. But it's about God's reconciling work that makes a new person in Christ with new responsibilities, new habits, new desires that all collectively work together to make us more mature in Christ, conforming to his image. 
while at the same time being an example to others to draw them in to that life as well. That's what it means to live the reconciled life. It should be an example that draws other in, others in. And all this is done only through the gospel of Christ and his reconciling work. And look, if you're an unbeliever and, and you're here today, I, I just really wanted to speak to you. If you're an unbeliever here today, it's my sincere hope that there was somebody or there is someone in your life that walked out these commitments that we talked about tonight and modeled them, modeled them for you to help draw you here today. I really hope that there's someone in your life like that. And now I'm not trying to discount the Holy Spirit, saints, but, but hear me out, believers. We have a commandment to make disciples and to draw people in. And so if, if you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here today, I just want to tell you the reality of your situation is that right now, you and God are at odds. You're at odds with God. And there's nothing that you can do to save yourself to please him. You can't just be good. And you can't just say, well, you know, I heard this sermon and this dude gave me like these, these five good points. And I'm going to try to put them in my life. and I'm going to try to walk them out. I'm going to try to implement them, Right. And in that way, you know, I'm going to have this, this list of things, and, and I hope I can earn my way to God's good graces. It doesn't work that way. You can't earn your way into heaven. You can't earn your way into a relationship with God. You can't do that. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Christ. That's it. It's only through Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever here today, I want you to know that you need to put all your trust, you need to put all your efforts, you need to put all your faith, you need to put your lifestyle, you, put, you need to put every ounce of you into Christ. You need to turn and repent and put your faith in Christ today. And I know sometimes I've heard other people say this, they say, well, you know, you just need to make Jesus your Lord. Can I say something? Y'all, Jesus is already Lord. You don't make Jesus your Lord. Jesus is already Lord. The issue and the question is, are you going to be at odds with him? Right? Are you going to be at, at odds with him? Are you going to be surrendered to him? I can't make Jesus Lord. No one can. Only he and the Father have done that. Jesus is Lord but are you surrendered to him? Have you thrown up the white flag and said, I surrender and I'm no longer going to try to keep doing things my way? That's the question. And at the end of the day, my desire for any unbeliever here today, if you decided to come in and say, you know what, I want, I want a new start to life, right? I want a new start to life. My desire for you is to certainly have that real peace through Christ. I want you to have real joy through life. I want you to have a life that's saturated in God's love, knowing that you have been reconciled to the most powerful being in all of the universe. And not only that, I want you to know him as your friend. Moreover, I want you to have the ability, and as you're being reconciled with God, as you're reconciled with him, you can call him father. You can call Christ your brother. And now instead of being separated from God, you're bound with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. And if you leave here today, that's the main thing I want you to think about if you're an unbeliever in this room. And now does this mean, right, and even some of the believers here can, can attest to this, does that mean that you know, once you're saved, you're not going to live a life where you have suffering, where you have issues, where you're guaranteed a life of, uh, free of pain. No, it, it doesn't mean that. In fact, living out this committed life, the reconciled life to God, your life might get harder. You might be called to do something so difficult that the only way that you could do it is through Christ alone. And guess what? He's going to get all the glory. That's what this life is. 
It's knowing that in spite of that, in spite of the suffering and the, the tough things you walk through, you have that joy. And saints, most importantly today, I just want you to, to leave here thinking about those commitments that, that we talked about. Live them out as we're called to do. Live them out because of your love for Christ, because of your love for him and what he did on the cross, because of your love for the Holy Spirit and what he continues to do in you, and because of your love for others that have yet to experience the great joy and the great peace of the reconciled life in Christ that you have today. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much, Lord, for the reconciling work of your son. Thank you, God, for restoring the relationship, God, between us and yourself, Lord. And God, we pray as we leave here tonight, Lord, as, as we continue to walk in the newness of this year, Lord, that we would hold fast to your word, Lord, that we would hold fast to the plow and not look back and live out this newness of the life that we have in you, God, because we are called and because you have said that we have a new life, Lord. God, our prayer is that the gospel would never get old to us. Lord, as believers, that we would continue, God, to rest in the fact that we are saved and that we are yours and there's nothing that we can do to be separated for you, from you. And Lord, for any unbelievers here tonight, God, I just pray, Lord, that if you're calling, if you're nudging them, Lord, that they would be so drawn to this committed life, that they would be drawn to the restored life that only you could give them, Lord. God, we thank you again for gathering us here tonight. In spite of everything else, Father, you are so good and you are so kind to us. And we pray all this in your son's holy name.